Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Synapse, Think Tank of the Air, featuring influencers, creatives, and thought leaders in the Twin Cities. And now, here is our host, Steve LeBall. Welcome to Synapse Think Tank of the Air. This is Steve LeBeau, and we have two guests with us today, two, I think, artistically oriented guests, although they have multiple orientations overall. We're here with uh, Maddie Schwapak. Did I pronounce that anywhere? You did. That was I right. Okay, we'll stop right there. But, uh, <laughs> you know, Maddie's going to be a presenter at an upcoming event called Yellow Summit, and Synapse is an, an official media sponsor for Yellow Summit, so I'm actually... Doing awesome. my duty by having you here. <laughs> and I'm going above and beyond duty having you here, Lana. Lana Barkawa? Barkawi. Barkawi. See, mm-hmm. I had to get one name wrong. No problem. And you're the executive director, in unusual title, you're executive director and artistic director of that's MISNA. Right. Yes, that's right. So yeah. I've never seen a person wear both hats. That means mm. you have like two sides of your brain. <laughs> well, um, you know, we're, in a, we're a small organization, so we're an organization where we wear multiple hats. Okay. Um, so and you, you, yeah. You switch them. Yes, I do. I do a, a little bit of both. You know, we get the work done administratively and artistically too. Um, but we also have, you know, wonderful people who do the sort of nitty gritty um, on our main programming, which I can get to. Okay, um, we'll yeah. get to we'll get mm-hmm. to some of that. Just yeah. okay. Now, just briefly in like a sentence or two, how did you arrive where you are now in your lofty position? Um. It may be hard to sort of summarize it in a sentence or two, but um, my background is um, in the sciences. I got a, um, I did a doctorate in biochemistry, um, and as I was in my postdoc, um, found myself really wanting to com- to connect with um, Arab community. I was here in Minneapolis. Um, well, there's probably a huge Arab community, right? It's not huge, but I was I was separated from my family and sort of the community I grew up with, and you know other places in the country and around the world, and um, found um, that Misna was doing all of this really incredible, forward thinking um, programming, and I just um, it I was just really drawn to it. And so over it was the years, it was, was it yeah. was your personal biochemistry. You could say that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah. Things went up and you connected. Right. So it was ongoing. You didn't found it or anything. It no, was... I didn't. It was founded by um, Kathy Haddad, who's a local playwright and um, an English teacher and um, started by a really smart um, group of board, founding board members with Kathy at the helm. And um, yeah, just really doing incredible work at the it was launched in order to publish a literary journal, the only lit journal for Arab American writing in the country oh, that, that so remains true today. National. So yeah. it, it was basically formed to attract you <laughs> to, to come and, and, and help it to grow, I presume, right? Because now you, I went to a thing, mm-hmm. well, it might have been a couple of years ago, about um, it was held at the loft and it was basically about media portrayals 
or was it more misportrayals mm. of, you know, uh, Arabs and, and Muslims in general? Yeah. So I wonder if that was a, a, a conversation about Islamophobia. That's, um, that's it. And politics that was right. that happened in 2016 during the election. Right. Um, that was during an Arab American lit conference that we co-presented with a national writing organization called Rawi. Um, mm. Yeah. So we've done we do we do various things. Our main um, projects are the are um, the the liter the literary journal and also the Twin Cities Arab Film Festival. Okay. Um, and then we dabble in other things as well. Okay. We'll talk more about that. But yeah. Maddie, how the heck did you become? I mean, your your list is things. Okay, you're a mechanical engineering student at the University of Minnesota. Yep, that's correct. I hear you're the music. Honcho of Radio K. <laughs> music honcho is one way to put it. Music director is music what director? I do. Yeah. Well, that's kind of the pedestrian way to yeah, put yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Music honcho is what my friends call me. <laughs> but but then but then you're you're kind of a you're, you're a presenter at Yellow Summit, which is like the interface of creativity and technology and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So what's your actual interface? Yeah, it's so it's kind of interesting. As a kid, I was always kind of like interested in both sides of sort of like what we typically consider separate things where I was very artistically inclined. I loved to look at art, to participate in art, do all these things. I played music for a lot of my youth. And then I also really liked okay. science. I just have to stop. Youth, she's, you're, right now you're 20. I am 20. Okay, so <laughs> for let's my... talk about your youth. <laughs> um, but yeah, and in addition to that, I was really always into science. I loved studying things like biology or getting involved in building things. Well, you have two sides of your brain too. Yeah, we have a lot of in common Gosh, in that yeah. way. With all yeah. these integrated people and here yeah. I am kind of uh, humping around on one half a brain. Yeah, so working in radio has just kind of like opened up a lot of cool opportunities. Um, I've kind of just like gotten thrown into the mix of speaking at different things or having different interviews. And when I heard about Yellow, I was like, this sounds like the perfect hmm. marriage of like mm. both sides of my brain. And I'm really glad to get to participate. Wow, that's good. So what, what music do you perform? Um, I played the oboe for like 10 years, doing sort of just like orchestral stuff. Okay, because yeah. you, know, you don't hear a lot of oboe in pop music, uh, oh, unless yeah. it's unidentifiable in a commercial or something. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> so, uh, but how did you, now I know they, the last time I listened to Radio K, they don't do a lot of orchestral music. <laughs> no, I was really passionate about sort of like underground music, the local music scene, indie music in high school, and started listening to Radio K through that. And so once I started at the U, I was like, okay, I have to run away from Gopher Sports, Sky U Ma stuff, and find my <laughs> my group of people. And so that's how I got started at Radio K, and it's been such a great fit there. So and so Radio K was made for you. Yeah, basically. To, to walk <laughs> I, in there and explore. Yeah, I started it back in whatever nine, 1993 because I knew I was on my way. Wow, I have I have to say that our um, one of our staff people, Nyla Taman, used to be the oh, yeah. program director yeah, at Radio K. Yeah, I've seen K. her name floating around. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, she's so wonderful. Yeah, and I have a connection too. Before it was Radio K, it was KUOM. Yeah, and I was an intern there way back when, when I was learning to uh, actually cut tape on radio. So I'm from the razor blade and tape days, wow. where you would cut it and. Um, and sometimes if you made a bad edit, you'd have to go into the trash can and take out a piece of tape and put it, tape, tape oh it gosh. back in. And very precise and, yeah. and kind of a hypnotic uh, activity to edit oh. tape. Mm-hmm. So that. it was fun. And then when analog, those analog, analog. Uh, I'm an arts, analog guy yeah. in a digital world. Love it. Yeah, we had a band in last Friday who did all of their stuff on tape. And it was mm. so funny just seeing that like juxtaposed against a lot of other stuff that we had going on there. Well, is tape, is that turning into a retro thing like uh, records are, the old uh, LPs? A little 
little bit. It's kind of trendy. Bands can crank out a bunch of tapes for really cheap versus mm. like getting vinyl press is super expensive. And so you could sell your tapes for like two or three bucks at your show instead of making fans dish out $20 for a vinyl record. And then try to find a place to play the tapes. <laughs> yeah, that's another challenge. I don't think they actually make tape players anymore. I don't know. You have to buy a really old car. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> they have them there. I remember, I remember all of a sudden I couldn't play my tapes on the new car anymore. You yeah. Had to, you had to play a... a CD or something. <laughs> um, now, what was your PhD in? Uh, bio, biological Bi- chemistry? Biochemistry? Biochemistry, yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, what does that even, uh, uh, do you do any of that anymore? I mean, is it just a latent part of your brain now? Uh, I suppose that's true, yeah. I, I don't I don't practice uh, biochemistry or um, I'm not involved in the sciences um, as of about seven, eight years ago when I took on the director position at Misna. Um, mm. But, you know, I find that a lot of the skills that I learned in graduate school are very applicable to running a small nonprofit. Um, you know, you kind of learn how to be resourceful and uh, a problem solver. And um, on some level, you know, a lot of what I do is grant writing. And on some level, whether you're writing a grant for your science um project or your artistic project there there are some similarities and things that kind of uh, there's a thread that kind of loops those together i think they use the same format of uh, so-called scientific reasoning okay if you do this what great thing is going to happen in the world because of it right just sort of um, translating your ideas into something that someone who knows nothing about what you do can understand the value uh, of and and also just knowing that that whole grant writing and fundraising process is not mysterious, but there are people on the other side of the, you know, <laughs> receiving button who are open to conversations and um, that sort of thing. Boy, well, that whole thing is mysterious as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> the grant writing, the, the money cometh and the money goeth. <laughs> the one rule, I think, is if you get some, then it's easier to get more, at least from that source. Yeah, I guess it's a muscle that you can, you know, kind of flex and practice and grow. And then you're on the map. They, yeah. re, they've, they've received something, therefore it's the 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 grantors are like banks, right? If 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 you build up your credibility by getting a, a grant and actually spending it on what you said you would, yeah, credibility. Yeah, and so much of it is about relationships, and you know the the the, the people on the selection panels or the program officers um, see the value in what you're doing and um, see beyond the you know application that you're writing to the actual lived work that you're that you're doing and the value that you're bringing to the community. Hmm. Now your community as you mentioned is uh, ambiguous because on some things it's national hmm. and on other things like the film festival that's I presume that's local or regional at most. That's true in terms of our audience right. um it it's um our, our subscriber base is um is national and international for the literary journal um and our writers come uh, from the Twin Cities and also um, are based nationally and internationally. So the journal does have more of a national presence, although it is very rooted here. And, you know, we we're, we publish here. We're very much devoted to being a local organization and living in the local ecosystem. So we publish our journal with local printers and, um, you know, work very locally in that way. Um, the film festival does have a very international base of um, films and filmmakers um, whom we draw from. So we're, we're showing debut cinema from 
Arab filmmakers in the Middle East and North Africa and also in the diaspora. So Arab filmmakers who are based wherever in the world. Um, increasingly, Arab American filmmakers um, are, you know, creating great films that we're showing and and also increasingly um, local and regional uh, filmmakers are kind of emerging. And we love that because nurturing the art, the um, artistic um, community um, in the Arab American community is something that we're we're very much passionate about. Boy, because um, I think it's good that you're producing films, the, the, the Arabs uh, around the world and also the diaspora, um, because the typical Arab that you see in a movie is usually mm-hmm. a bad guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got a lot Terrorist of... Terrorist, too. Or, right. right yeah. Counter, yeah. counter-programming mm-hmm. to do. Is, yeah. is, that, is that one of your big things in general? Is, is um, Because I assume your audience is mainly Arab Americans. It's really a mix so in you, terms of getting... our audience. Yeah, yeah we, we definitely think about our audience in terms of reaching in and reaching out. So we, we see... We're really motivated and from day one, this is what Mizna has been all about is to be a place for our community, um, to see ourselves reflected on the page, on the screen, in some facet of our truths, you know, that that an artist is um, telling a story from their perspective that is, is, is going to be recognizable on some level to Arabs and Muslims in the audience. Um, and that's so par- powerful, especially in the West and in the United States, when, as you say, our community is represented by others all the time in Hollywood and in um, the media and the news in in really um, irresponsible, uh, vilifying ways. So, so, it, it so is, how many yeah. uh, Arab and or Muslim uh, directors do we have in Hollywood? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know that I know the numbers, but there are there, an increasing there are number. Some. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, uh, there's um, what is his name? Ali Salim actually is a local. Um, he's he's from Minnesota, an Egyptian filmmaker who was um, who who was raised here, who made. Um, oh, now I'm going to forget the film, but it might have been called Sweet Land or Sweet Home a few years ago. That was about a northern Minnesota small Norwegian farming community, um, and he's been a, um, an honored guest at our film festival. Um, and there's also the the director of the um, series, um, Mr. Robot, who's an Egyptian American director, and um, he cast an Egyptian American actor in the lead of that series. And that's a really so well regarded series. Yeah. It's so nice to have control, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Because you can change the script, you change the conversation, you tell three-dimensional stories that are not about Arabs being bombers, billionaires, and belly dancers, as we like to say. <laughs> you know, yeah. The big triad. Of, yeah. <laughs> geez, wow. Right. And, and um, Radio K, I have not listened to it lately because I'm old. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I used to listen to it because it was one of the places you would find out um, what are these young people listening to? Yeah. And and that, way before, uh, what's that one now that, that's uh, across the river? Um, the Current. The Current. Way before mm-hmm. The Current, you had Radio K. Mm-hmm. And then I think KFAI Radio had a few programs mm-hmm. of maybe exploring uh, uh, the newer underground music. But basically, you were, you were the one-person one show, right? Yeah, kind of like that. I actually internet the current, so it's interesting sort of having mm. both sides of the river, both sides of that sort of um, independent, not-for-profit 
rock right. radio. Yeah, but Radio K has been around student-run since 1993 in that capacity. It's actually the oldest running AM translator in the country. It's mm. been around since like the 1800s, which is crazy. The, we used to broadcast uh, football games in Morse code. And now we've we've really? switched over to yeah. some different programming. Gosh, I can't tell you how rusty my Morse code is. Yeah, I just I'm always trying to tune into the football game in Morse code and just find myself <laughs> at a loss. Well, was that was he inbounds or out of bounds? Yeah, I daughter a dash. <laughs> but um, do, what what kind of audience do you reach now? Because you are online also, mm-hmm. so all of a sudden those uh, local boundaries, the 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 signal of the broadcast, because mm-hmm. KUM used to disappear when the sun went down. Yeah, that's not the case anymore. We have FM signals, we have a mobile app, and an s- online stream that goes on f- 24 hours a day. Gosh. Yeah. The power. Yeah, really. Is is uh, How do you keep an audience engaged? How do you know you find the right new underground stuff? Um. Yeah, that's a good question. It's kind of nice having social media as sort of like a feedback system because they'll tell you yeah they'll let you know like if there's there's this one song that we are playing a lot of and there was this man who used to call in and just say like whatever you do don't play that song during my drive time which is ridiculous but and we had other positive feedback about program it. for me yeah which is funny but also like we have countless other positive examples people tweeting at us like wow i just discovered this cool artist from radio k and he's playing the turf club next month or something mm. like that ah. Yeah, so it's kind of nice to have that sort of like more conversational aspect to radio where we're able to really interact with our like listeners and audience base digitally. Hmm. Well, I'm glad that radio is still surviving. It's kind of, yeah. you know, it's it's like when um, when the digital revolution came, they all wondered about print, is print dead? Yeah. And um, I guess that's still kind of a question, although yeah. it, it didn't die like they thought it would. No, in fact, I think I just saw something in the news that independent bookstores are opening at a really surprising rate around the country. Mm-hmm. Mm. And then the big ones are closing the big box they, they all went online with Amazon, right? right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or else, yeah. <laughs> or else you don't go anywhere. Um, the, uh, uh, does your major, uh, Maddie in mm-hmm. mechanical engineering, does that have anything to do with radio? You know, I thought for a while that I wouldn't, but I find so much more crossover than mm. I expect. Like, there's this big database that we use to program music in our library, and it's used sort of across the industry called Music Master. And I real like had this kind of epiphany this summer when I was doing a lot of like nitty gritty stuff in it, where I realized that it functions a lot of the same way as one of the computer languages that I had learned this mm. the semester before. The way that like familial trees and databases and pointers and all of that you know, sort of like techie garbage works in this computer language was so, so, so similar to this like program that we were using to run radio. And that mm-hmm. like totally changed the way that I thought about it. And it was, I don't think I would have that sort of experience if it weren't for going to school in STEM. Gosh, I feel kind of overwhelmed here because I'm <laughs> I'm kind of an un-STEM guy. My, my forte yeah. is words mm-hmm. and ideas and, and numbers never got, I never <laughs> got along well with numbers and here I am with two scientists. <laughs> so it's a little bit intimidating. <laughs> But uh, but but you're crossover scientists. You you mm-hmm. get into the arts as well as to the uh, to all the, the scientific stuff. Well, you know, I don't think that um, I think science gets a rap of being really dry and not creative. But I think the best scientists, maybe you agree, yeah. have to really be creative because science is about discovery and it's about asking questions to understand our world and then um, crafting the right experiment to under, to to answer that question and and you know in order to do those things you really have to think 
unconventionally and not be, you know, I think trapped by what the common understanding of the world is. Well, that's a good thought. We're going to return to that in a moment. Um, maybe it's just the way they teach science that's so dry and <laughs> that boring. That is a problem. <laughs> so we're talking here with um, Lana Barkawi and Maddie Schwapik. We'll be right back. Synapse, Think Tank of the Air. We'll be back in a moment. And we're back. I'm Steve LeBeau with Synapse Think Tank of the Air. We're here with two guests, Lana Barkawi. Did I say that closer? Yeah, that's right. Lana Barkawi. Lana Barkawi. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, I put You got it. Okay, Maddie Schwapik. Uh, they're both uh, science-oriented people dealing in a lot of artistic realms. Um, Lana, you, you oversee a lot of, uh, there's the film series, there's the literary productions. Mm-hmm. Is there a productive art side of you too? Do you want to mm. make a film? Do you want to <laughs> write a poem? You know, I I haven't had an artistic practice, um, so I can't say that. I do enjoy to draw and um, and I do enjoy to, I, I do enjoy writing. I just don't really make time for the, for those things, but I desire that. I intend to. Well, at least you mm-hmm. like that stuff. I do. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I have two little kids and it's kind of fun to kind of, you know, re uh, tap into that creative spirit of um, childhood by, you know, shepherding kids through their first years. Oh, how old are they? Um, there's uh, eight and ten, so um, okay, third grade so they're, and they're real humans fifth. by now. Yeah, they are. They're pretty fun <laughs> going fun around. They, people, mm-hmm. they're, they're potential to be dangerous. Yes, they know what to do, and, right. and, uh, and and they know they're in control when they want to be. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of negotiating. Wow. And <laughs> I won't even ask you about kids. Uh, Randy. I mean, you, because well, not, you're not a kid because you can look back on your youth. Right. Yeah. I'm 18 years old. I can sign. I'm over 18 years old. I can sign leases. I can, um, I don't know. No, you can vote. I can vote. I do that. Now, what about alcohol? What's the latest age for that? It's at 21. So it's I still have 20. a few months before I can. So that goes back and forth. And, yeah. and you can Does drive. It? I can. I can drive. Do you drive? I don't drive. I live in a city, so I just take the light rail everywhere. Do you have a license? Yeah, I do. Okay. See, my daughter, she's 20, about to turn 24. She uh, never did get a license. Oh, Went, yeah. Lived in the city and went to another city and is moving to another city. So yeah. it's like, why drive? I, I keep hearing that young people are not getting their licenses. I find it so inspiring. It's really cool. Yeah, yeah. I have not really driven other than like a road trip or two every summer in a couple of years. Hmm. Are you from the Twin Cities? Um, I'm from like the North Metro in Elk River. Oh, okay. Well, that counts. That's the greater, greater well, I like Twin to say cities, the, the yeah. greater St. Paul area. I'm from St. Paul, so we'll extend it there. Yeah. So that's um, so. Was that a big deal for you to then go to the city? Uh, not really. I spent a lot of my teenage years in Minneapolis, just like being involved in different things here, and also just like already being really engaged with art and music community that was happening here. So I would sort of like commute to go do my recreational stuff, like going to shows and museums and stuff like that in high mm. school. Why did you want to go to school here too? I mean, um, you know, it it's kind so of, comfortable. <laughs> yeah, that was I honestly was not my first choice. I really wanted to go to a school in Chicago, and they didn't give me the scholarship that I wanted. Oh. Uh, the classic tale of a 
millennial, but um, <laughs> yeah, so I ended up here not thinking that I was going to enjoy it, and it ended up being such a great fit for me, because Minneapolis has that, like, really great create thriving creative scene and I'm also able to sort of like study the sciences and sort of engage with that practice as well so it's been a really good fit better than I would have ever imagined who needs Chicago yeah <laughs> Gosh, and, and where are you from uh, Lana um I was um born in Arizona but I'm kind of from all over the place so you've my, lived around. yeah my my family moved a lot when I was a kid so we moved between the west coast of the U.S and Canada, and also places in the Middle East, um, like um, Kuwait and Saudi Arabia um, and um, Jordan. Well, is Minnesota your favorite place out of all those locations? <laughs> you know, I have to say it kind of is. Really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I was um, half jesting. Because... No, I, <laughs> I've, um, this is the longest, uh, I've lived in Minnesota the longest of all the places I had before. Um, I moved here as a graduate student and um, just kind of really fell in love with the um, with the cities and fell in love with a Minnesotan. And mm. um, that's part of the oh, reason that I'm here as well. So I got an married to husband. Admit, yes. <laughs> right. Wow. Mm-hmm. So uh, but but to go on vacation, if you have to get away from Minnesota, where would you go? Um, well, I always, you know, I'm drawn to visit family. My family, my parents and sisters are um, in Northern California, so we find ourselves there quite a bit in the Sacramento area and the Bay Area. Well, that's beautiful there. It is, yeah. Um, and um, we're planning an upcoming trip to Amman, Jordan. Um, I want to take my boys and my husband. Um, it's been nearly 20 years since I've been back, so I'm looking forward to um, visiting the city and seeing some of the beautiful um, archaeological sites. Well, see, that's what's um, kind of uh, stressful is that because of all the wars going on in the mm-hmm. Middle East, that's where civilization was born, right? You have all these mm-hmm. ancient things and mm-hmm. everything was invented there. And, and yeah. um, uh, you know, it's kind of kind of sad, but it's good to know a lot of it still exists. Yeah, there are some beautiful ruins there, um, and it's true that in like neighboring Syria, a lot of um, there's just been so much, and in Iraq, devastation um, because of war. Um, that's um, that's just tragic to think about. Um, but my family is also my my parents are both Palestinian, so that's um, kind of the origin of who I am, and um, um, that's something that is a big part of myself as well. Hmm. Do you speak mm-hmm. Arabic? A little bit. Okay. Yeah. That's it's something an, your parents. It's rusty. Okay, your parents to drill that into you, or no? It's that classic tale of an immigrant uh, family who um, w- were working on mastering their English, and so uh-huh. the Arabic was you know kind of a back burner kind of thing. There, there's a, a lot of parents think that if you don't always speak English, they won't learn English. Right. But you're in America for crying out loud! Yeah. You go outside, you know, you play with any kids or watch TV. It's the English kids is are going to soak in the English, um, and I think that's. Kind of understood more these days. I see so many young immigrant families where the, there is a preservation of the of the language um, and knowing like a confidence that the kids are going to get English from school and from everywhere right. else. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You're you're drowning in English, mm-hmm. and and um, you have the advantage now too for kids coming up that there's probably a lot of online media in Arabic so they can get their ears adjusted and, and learn from that. Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah. So I know in my case, my my wife is from Japan, so that was a big thing with our daughter is to mm. make sure there was a lot of Japanese language around. So first grandma would send the videos, and then 
we would get the satellite TV, and then you know, the finally the internet came. Mm. So then that became the uh, the medium to to get the language across. But it's an effort. It is, yeah. And we we teach Arabic classes. We offer them through Mizna, and a lot of the students that we have are it's kind of community ed, you know. And a lot of the students we have are Arab American um, young people or people who are young adults um, who are kind of in the same boat of trying to master a language that their parents didn't convey. Mm-hmm. So there's su- such a strong link between uh, language and culture. Did you learn a second language, uh, Maddie? Uh, I've taken French for about six years. Yeah. Okay. So you can do what? Um, I <laughs> like watching like French cinema or reading in it. I'm not mm. as confident of a speaker as I'd like to be, but yeah, still learning. Gosh, my, my daughter learned French too, and she... Uh, so then to uh, pretend to study, she would watch movies but turn on the French subtitles. And so <laughs> I'm studying. I'm studying. <laughs> yeah. So it's, mm-hmm. it's a way we couldn't do. So there's a strong link between language and culture. So you try to, uh, I assume, Lana, try to uh, maintain as much culture, cultural connections as you can, given that you're living in Minnesota. Yeah. And I mean, that's what that's what being involved with Misna really um, does for me. It kind of feeds my soul in that way, you know, so I get to be um, always reading um, incredible new um, writers' work and um, watching cinema, um, listening to music. Um, There's a um, one, and there are a lot of people in town who are doing some really incredible things, a lot of um, artists here. Um, There's a local Syrian musician whose music name is Hello Psycholepo. I wonder if you know about hmm. him. I'm not super familiar with him. So um, you can exchange notes. Yeah, I'll yeah. have to tag. Mm-hmm. Um, he does electronic dance music um, that's kind of a, a new genre that he created called Electro Tarab, which is taking a, a kind of a classic Arabic music um, style and um, electronifying it, if that's a word. Um, electrifying. And he, <laughs> he does a beautiful... Um, I, Very cool. Beautiful work, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And he's he's kind of flying under the radar here a little bit, but he's really, um, he has a big reputation in Europe and the Middle East. He plays to big audiences, cool. yeah. When he can get over there, given his um, visa status and the Muslim ban and that sort of thing. Oh, what a pain that is. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, I'm wondering, one of the hopes for the future is that the the newer generations are not as mixed messed up <laughs> as the older ones, you know, in, in so many ways in terms of open mindedness and, and mm-hmm. understanding differences. What is it like? Uh, of course, you're 20 years old, but you're hanging around a bunch of radicals at Radio K, right? It's, <laughs> yeah. it's not like you're a in the young. You're not the young Republicans club. Uh, d- club. Not quite. <laughs> so, uh, what are your attitudes towards a lot of the current events going on? Yeah. So that's like. Stressful being any sort of person, just sort of like living under an administration that is um, causing a lot of fear and aims to do so. And sort of just like through the work that I do, it's more of like an indirect sort of a, I don't want to say like retaliation, but sort of an indirect Mm. um, reaction. Yeah, reaction to like what's going on and that like I'm not able to change policy. I can go vote and do my normal civic stuff like that but I really work to put on the radio voices that are not traditionally represented through those like sort of mediums really like working to make sure that like people from different cultural backgrounds international artists um, women who are still extremely underrepresented in radio in general and people of color just um, giving those those people like a voice and a platform when they traditionally like haven't been it's like been one of our big goals as a station 
in just like our small way that we can like reach out and make sure that the we have the representation there. Because uh, for me, it's developing the ear. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I'm, I'm fortunate. My father uh, played jazz. I mean, that wasn't his main job, but he, you know, mm-hmm. played jazz on weekends and um, and had jazz music around the house. And here I'm a little kid growing up in the '60s, so right. it's at first it was the Kingston Trio, and then it was the Beatles and all that stuff. But then when I started going to college, I got tired of rock and went went to jazz. So I had mm-hmm. the ear and I was still able to do that. Um, I think the way you wire your brain when you're young makes a big difference. Definitely, yeah. So I know and for bilingual, you probably run into a lot of bilinguals, uh, Alana. Yeah. Or trilinguals. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Mm-hmm. So their brains are wired differently. That's right, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know too much about this, but I mean just the, the, the capacity of the brain to learn um, multiple languages as a as a kid is so um, it, it's really deep, um, and then the connections between learning language and being open to really compl- complex um, ideas uh, in terms of mathematics and um, other kind of conceptual ideas is, mm-hmm. is supposed to be really strong. Um, I think about that with my children. Well, good. Yeah. So, are they learning Arabic? My son, Omar, is a fifth grader at um, Lindale Community School, a South Minneapolis school, that is the only elementary school that has an Arabic program. And they do? They do. It's oh really gosh. cool. It's a public school, and it has Arabic. Rita Farah has an incredible Arabic teacher there. Um, she teaches at some other um, public schools in at higher grades as well. Um but um, fifth graders begin Arabic. So this is the year, that, this is his oh, year. So finally. he's probably actually taking Arabic maybe as we speak. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's kind of yeah. cool. Now, have you faced any lashback because of all the anti-Arab and anti-Muslim sentiment that's mm. been sweeping the nation and, and Europe? Yeah. Um, you know, we are sort of shielded from it somehow. I think the um, audience who's drawn to our work um, doesn't... Um, isn't that audience um, for for better or worse? Um, they don't want to go there to, uh, yeah. to watch a good Arabic movie. Yeah, I suppose. Um, when we feel it is when we do um, things like sponsored ads on social uh, media, when we're reaching an audience outside of people who've decided to, you know, engage with our work, and that's where you get really kind of hateful comments and um, really mean spirited things, um, mm. and that's disturbing you know every once in a while we'll have a, um an act of vandalism like we, we our ha- our offices used to be in the california building in northeast and we we'd have the occasional um remark on materials outside of our door um it's it's always little graffiti graffiti um that's you know um things like no jihad uh, as a response to what we're doing you know and it's it's kind of expected but it also you know, it's a kind of a psychic trauma to see that. Like, oh yeah, that's right. This is why. This is why we do what we do. Boy, well, the, yeah. the there's so much. I mean, my theme in life is is trying to understand things mm-hmm. because I when I grew up, well, the '60s, everything was so confusing that um, you know I wanted why is this happening? Why do, why do people have to fight for no reason? I mean, if you're people usually fight over land or wealth or women or you know there's usually some objects. <laughs> But when it's just a mistaken, uh, different ideas, mm-hmm. then I think it's uh, totally unjustifiable. Mm-hmm. So, um, but that's what we have. We live in a world. Well, I mean, when I played my music when I was young, 
I mean, in those days, Hendrix was brand new and mm-hmm. all that. I went to see him twice, by the way. No way. So, um, but then there was the generation gap. That was the big yeah. thing in understanding, especially at that time. I don't know. Does your mother or parents, do they listen to your music and think, gosh, what are you doing with that radio cage? <laughs> um, yeah, my parents don't tune in all the time, but they, I did a whole like goth set once where I was doing a bunch of like sort of like weird dark wave or like experimental stuff. And my mom tuned in and she was like, what is going on? Mm-hmm. Like, is this okay? Mm-hmm. But for the most part, they love supporting me. Um, and I know my mom used to like take me to 18 plus concerts when I was underage. So I, th- we have a good bond through that. And they've like tried to understand and opened up a lot to a lot of different stuff sort of through what I'm doing. Well, that's good to maintain a line of communication. Yeah, totally. Even if they don't dance along with your (laughs) goth, what was that? It was. It was was just like a whole like dark wave set that I was. Dark wave. See, I've never heard that dark wave. Yeah, yeah. It was just. That's how old wave I am. Right. (laughs) It was fun stuff. I got a text from my mom. It was so cute. A couple weeks ago, she's like, "Have you heard of this band Snail Mail?" I was listening to the current, and I heard them play a song and thought you would like them. And I was like, "Yeah, mom, I love them. That's awesome." (laughs) It was really cute. So now, for a person, my daughter loves radio. Uh, uh, she loves the current, mm-hmm. and you can get that online. So she lives yeah, in New York now. That's but awesome. she's, but um, how would you, as an insider, compare the current and Radio K? What what's mm-hmm. objectively, or is it is is the current more mainstream, or are they more <laughs> eclectic? Yeah. So just from hosts and DJs, we're like the most amateur you can get. We you go through a DJ training program and stuff. You have your practice shifts, but like everyone is a student, and most people DJ three hours a week and don't think about it any other time. Mm. You're not smooth like the. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's like, and those are career DJs who like have great personalities and have like a lot of people who love that about them. But there's a lot more polish there, and some people really don't like listening to people stumble over their words on the radio and well that'll be a deterrent and some people think mm-hmm. it's really charming mm-hmm. so just that's one aspect of it for sure i think radio k2 um we have a lot i think we have more eclectic programming where the current is like more focused on keeping like a certain like rotation and stuff like that they definitely introduce their listeners to a ton of new music and that's awesome but it's um in a lot more sort of like controlled way versus like radio k where like you could tune into a show and not know what you're going to hear. We have a whole specialty show dedicated to Vaporwave, and I think we're the only one, still the only station that does that. And it's just a this Vaporwave? Weird, yeah, it's this weird internet subgenre that doesn't have that many people listening oh. to it. And we have like an hour of it on every single week, which is, it's, it's a super like quirky little example. But stuff like that is like, I think, the biggest difference. Vaporwave, dark wave. All these waves. I know. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a, yeah. It's, it's, it's an education. Wave, wave thing. Yeah. <laughs> now, does the money mainly come from the University of Minnesota, or do you rely on sponsors? It's a good combination. We have a great relationship with um, student service fees at the U, and so as like a student group, we're able to get some of our funding through that. Um, we have biannual pledge drives. One is coming up next month already. Mm. There's so much work that goes into that, but we ask for money from our listeners and are lucky enough to get a lot of donations from that. And then we also work for some um, grants, especially for our like newer programming. Like We have a couple podcasts that have started up, and we restructured the way we do our local show, and stuff like that is able to get funded by grant money. Okay. Boy, at KFBI, where I was, we did those pledge drives. I hated it. Mm. <laughs> okay, now we're going to hold you ransom and talk about all this money stuff instead of <laughs> playing our records like we want to do. Mm-hmm. You're listening to a non-musical program, although it <laughs> sounds like we should be one. Uh, I'm Steve LeBeau. We're here on Synapse Think Tank of the Air. We're here on with uh, Lana Barkawi and Maddie Schwapik. We'll be back in a moment. Synapse. Think Tank of the Air. We'll be back in a moment.
And we're back on Synapse Think Tank of the Air, talking uh, with two scientists that are both in the art world, mm-hmm. more or less, at least uh, for the moment. Um, Lana, or I'm um, sorry, Maddie, you were saying about radio, uh, it's kind of an old-fashioned thing. Mm-hmm. So what's your future in radio? Yeah, that's the big question mark, I think, for everyone in the industry. And I've talked to a lot of people about it. And I think the way that I look at it is radio is still really necessary in this world for sort of like the community aspect and sort of working, having a platform for artists, both um, touring bands that come in through town and local artists who are like getting a start. I can build a Spotify playlist and share it with my friends, but it's not the same experience as having a platform that a bunch of people can go to for music discovery and working on doing things like recording in studios and interviews, sponsoring Mm -hmm. shows and all of that kind of stuff. And so in that way, radio is kind of transformed into this multimedia sort of entity instead of just being on the airwaves like it used to be. Hmm. Does um, Mizna have uh, a podcast? You know, we dabbled in it. Um, so we do have um, a podcast identity called Mizna Stream, and we have a few pre-recorded events of ours. Um, actually, that um, that conversation that you went to about Islamophobia, it was our premiere um, episode. Oh, um, so that's, that, that exists somewhere. It exists somewhere. You can find it on, you know, um, iTunes and Stitcher and all the places that you find podcasts. But but it was um, something that we dabbled in and just kind of didn't have the capacity to keep up. So we have a little bit of a stockpile of um, recordings of author events and other conversations, panels um, that live on our hard drives and um, just haven't made it to the podcast. So it's sort of dormant, I would say. It's in your long-term memory back yeah. there somewhere. All right, yeah. Uh, yeah. Laying around. Yeah. The um, Now you have a film series coming up. Yes, the, the Twin Cities Arab Film Festival. How many films are in that? Um, it's still um, kind of get, be, becoming concrete, but it it will it'll probably shake out to about twenty seven to thirty films. That's a huge number. It is, yeah. It's a it's a mix of feature length films and shorts. Okay. Um, and so some segments will will pair a short and a feature length, and then we'll have other segments that is a, a, a segment of experimental shorts or local shorts, that sort of thing. What languages are they in? Oh, that's a great question. Um, um, Many of the films are in Arabic um, or other languages that um, occur in the Middle East. Um, There's a film, um, what a a film in Kurdish um, that's an Iraqi film that we have that's all in Kurdish, and all the films who that that we have that are not English are subtitled. So it's definitely accessible for um, sort of any English um, speaker as well. Hmm. So quite a bit of variety. It's true, a variety um, of genre. So we have documentaries and um, narrative features, um, shorts that are in both that are both um, documentary and narrative. And also increasingly we have, well, I, I, maybe not even increasingly, since the very first film festival, we've always loved to have experimental film that mm. kind of are meditative or just kind of maybe challenge the viewer. Kind of like a Radio K film. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. probably some crossover. Some Arab wave. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and this year, um, because it's the 70th year of the Israeli occupation of Palestine, we're commemorating that um, by having a focus on Palestine. So the film festival takes place over um, four days, the 20 September 27th through the 30th, and the last day is um, all Palestinian film. Wow. Yeah. Where do you show these films? At St. Anthony Main Theater. Um, 
in partnership with the Film Society. So it's on the the Film Society's Screen Three at the St. Anthony Main Theater in um, okay. Minneapolis, right on the river there. The Mississippi River. Yeah. Well, I remember seeing a, Main Street. one of the international films, and I think it was a co-production between Finland and Hungary. And so then, so for part of the film, they'd speak in Hungarian, mm. and part of the film, they'd speak in Finnish, but when the, they'd get together, then they'd speak English, because yeah. that was their most common second language. Mm-hmm. But then if they encountered someone that didn't speak English, then they'd go to German. That would be their, <laughs> their, their backup to, to that language. Must so be nice to have kind of, a Rolodex of languages yeah, like that. Yeah. Really. Here in Minnesota, all we have is different accents. You know, do you have the Fargo <laughs> accent or not? <laughs> um, the, um, and then what are you speaking at <clears throat> Excuse me, at the Yellow Summit coming up on uh, September 14th, which is that's, that's really soon. Yeah, it's just a couple of weeks away. It's cool. I've been involved with it for so many months that it's like nice to have it just right around the corner. Uh, my speech is sort of centering around what it takes to get arts and sciences integrated in like a team or in a progr- That's project. like yourself. Yeah, it really is. And mm-hmm. be me. Yeah, I'm yeah, just be just like me. <laughs> no, it's I'm just talking about some sort of like experiences that I've had working in engineering, working in music that I've experienced really direct crossover and like what I've learned from those and like what I think I could share with other people from that. Hmm. And you say you've been working on a speech, is this like a TEDx talk or something? Yeah, I think I'm presenting for 50 minutes. So it's, it's 50, a, five it's zero? A, yeah. So I'm Gosh, gonna, that's like a, an hour. It's a, it's really <laughs> close to that. <laughs> yeah. It's a long speech and it's going to be, it's cool. It's a different sort of a challenge from other things that I've faced to sort of summarize the things that I've learned in just really the past few years. I'm just barely getting my toes wet in it, but I think that that's perspective. Who's the audience? Yeah, it's a variety of people from the Twin Cities who are both um, sort of like entrepreneurs and working in startups and stuff like that. Creatives who are um, working in the creative industry in some way or another, and that's sort of like very loose terminology. But people who are working directly in arts and with artistic people, and then also people who are working on sort of like the tech side of things. Because that's what uh, Yellow's about, yeah. that interface between tech and creativity. Yeah, it's there's going to be some really interesting things going on. I know they're opening up with a performance that uh, involves both contemporary dance and um, the performers working with technology within her piece, too. Mm. So it should be really interesting. Boy, so 50 minutes. Are you going to have <laughs> slides? Are you going to music? Are you going to yeah, it's bring out a- the oboe? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't thought about that yet. I'll ask if they can they can hook me up and give me an oboe amp or something. No, um, it's mostly just slides and a little bit of like video and sort of like animated stuff too. Mm. Is is it? Um, I mean, I think of young people. You think they're born with a computer, you know, with a laptop. <laughs> you know, as, as soon as they start breastfeeding, they're you know yeah. typing something up. <laughs> um, is there a gap between the young artists and technology, or or do the young artists glum onto technology along with their art. Yeah, I think there's a lot more integration in there than there probably was in the past. I think since young people have just, uh, technology's always been a part of my life. I've had a laptop since, I don't know, I was 10 or 12 years old or something like that. And that sort of integration makes art a lot more accessible too. Like if you're someone who's recording music and you can do it on your laptop with a $200 mic instead of trying to go into a studio for thousands of dollars. It made it a lot more accessible to sort of broaden your artistic reach as a young person without a ton of finances, which is cool. Mm. Mm. Rather than just pencil and paper. Yeah. <laughs> Going beyond all that. Definitely. And and for, for your arts resources, um, Lana, I think you can draw from all over the world, too, for, for any kind of artistic endeavor because you mm. have 
uh, contacts everywhere. I was looking up some of the, the people you have. They, they're, mm. they're global citizens. Yeah, absolutely. That's true. Um, in fact, we're, we're um, trying to invite um, some international, some um, filmmakers and actors from the Middle East to our film festival. We, all, we often have visitors and it's always a nice experience for, you know, audience members to engage with um, someone who made a film or acted in a film after the film ends. It's I think it adds so much depth to that experience. Um, but it's always touch and go with, um, uh, you know, with um, travel issues and travel bans. And in fact, there's a filmmaker ba- who's Syrian uh, with a Syrian passport who's based in um, Paris right now. Um, and we'd like to invite her with her film and um, she doesn't know if she'll get her visa. And if she gets it, she's quite concerned about being hassled at the airport. So, so she's these on, are the kinds of things we deal with. She's from one of the wrong countries. That's right. One of the banned countries, yeah. the so-called uh, the dangerous banned. countries. That's right. Uh, yeah. Do, what do you do? And I, I see you have all your hair left. Why, why don't you pull it out? I mean, don't you, don't you feel <laughs> it's like turning gray. It out? <laughs> it's turning gray for sure. But um, I, you know, I, I think that. These kinds of things, the state of the world and the state of the country, I would feel so much more forlorn about it if I wasn't doing the work that I'm doing. It kind of helps me kind of process things because I get to read and um, listen to and see the way that artists are um, kind of taking the world and um, shifting it through their prism. And it, it just makes um, it, it it's sort of a... Um, the, you know, gives me the world that I desire to live in um, through mm. through sort of the artist's vision. Boy, that's kind of interesting that, um, I mean, that's kind of the value, especially theater and opera. They bring mm. you into a different reality yeah. altogether and then uh, different music and, and um, artworks can, can do that too. And here we live in the world where the president has an alternate reality that's not based on, on factual reality. Yeah. And so it's, it's um, gosh, what can you glum onto to, to, um, to get some, some, to get your feet on the ground, yeah. you know what I mean. It's yeah. it's it's a uh, it's dizzying. Yeah, yeah. Well, in our um, upcoming um, issue of the literary journal is all also in the same way that the film festival is focusing on Palestine. We have a themed issue of our lit journal that's coming up in the winter. That's also kind of commemorating the seventy years of op- occupation. And one of one of the themes of that one of the sort of sub themes is kind of a speculative. Uh, fiction and thinking about what the future could hold, you know, and kind Mm. of imagining worlds. And I love that. And I think that that's something that Arab artists do so much in their work um, is to kind of um, not feel shackled by our reality, but kind of imagine what can be. That's the value of art artist. Yeah. Yeah. uh, I'm just wondering, you know, we recently saw the, the film, my wife and I, who's like I said, Japanese, we saw Crazy Rich Asians. Yeah. And so finally, after 25 years since the last one, a, a film that's produced and starred a bunch of Asian people. Right. I mean, all, is all there any idea Asian for, cast. I mean, I can, just the title, I don't know if that rings very well, uh, Crazy Rich Arabs, but, uh, <laughs> you know, because there are such things. Yeah. But but um, has anybody thought, well, why don't we do our film yeah. with all, you know, yeah. Arab actors and stuff? Mm-hmm. Well, there have been some kind of um, Hollywood releases that are um, Arab uh, films. Not very many. Um, Amrika and um, Caramel. Um, I think both by Nadine Labaki. Oh, I might have that wrong. I think maybe 
um, Amrika was by a different um, director, Shireen Debus. But um, y- yeah, I think the the idea of um, Arabs taking over Hollywood is exciting. <laughs> um, one of the the um, directors, Nadine Lebeki, who's a, just a really um, brilliant filmmaker, she um, sh- her new film um, uh, Kafir Naam. Um, was a big hit at Cannes and is getting a lot of um, a lot of attention and acclaim, and it also will be screening at the Toronto International Film Festival. And it's going to be a really special presentation at our film festival, um, a co-presentation with the Film Society, and it's sort of a special um, North American preview um, before it hits theaters. So that will be a film that will be in indie theaters around the country mm. um, come December, I think, but you can see it at the film festival on opening night on Thursday. Okay. And hopefully Nadine will be here too. Well, that'd be great. Yeah, yeah. So it's nice to have real people. I mean, yeah. uh, growing up, I always had a sense that the people on TV were more real than, than the people you see every day. But, yeah. And then if you can bring them there live, then it's uh, a real nice reality, an, yeah. an ultimate reality. Um. Do you pick out the films? Or are you just more of the administrator, or how does that work? You no, know, I'm. I don't pick out the films. I don't. Um, we have a, a terrific um, film fest curator, Michelle Baroudi, um, an Arab American um, woman who's um, a, a getting her PhD in um, cultural studies, um, and um, she's been our curator for a few years and has been involved with the film festival for a, a number of years before that. So she um, is the curator. She also works with a committee, a selection committee, who um, screens a lot of the films that we get submitted to us. And so there's a pretty involved selection process um, to, to, you know, select a really great set of films that hangs well together and does the work of kind of representing different genres, different identities, um, different um, places in the world across the Middle East and North Africa, um, and, you know, it's a big kind of um, project to curate a festival that feels balanced in all of the ways that, that are important to us. And right. she does a really fabulous job. Boy, and, and you say they picked about, what, between 20 and 30 films? Yeah. yeah. And so then they must have watched 50 or 60. More, yeah. More. Mm-hmm. Gosh, yeah. well, that's good. They have a lot to choose from, all the different countries that you're, that, that produces films. Yeah, that's mm. true. What's the biggest air-producing uh, film country? Oh, that's a good question. It's probably either Egypt or Lebanon, but probably Egypt. Egypt has a very strong um, cinema um, history. That Not goes Omar back. Sharif. That's right, Omar e- Sharif, who Egyptian. passed away a couple of years ago, sadly. Um, but yeah, he was a, he was the rare kind of crossover actor who was a very big deal in the Middle East and a very very big deal here as well. When I was a kid, they had Lawrence of Arabia come out, yeah, and he was one of the actual Arabs playing an Arab. Yeah, that's right. They that's had right. Uh, Mexicans and British, right, right. What a all concept! Kinds of people, yeah, uh, self you know, representation. That makeup, <laughs> that makeup is so effective. Yeah, <laughs> oh, you're going to give. You've never seen the movie. I haven't seen that one. Okay, well, it's um, it's considered a masterpiece, but I don't know what would would be the Arab perspective of it. You know, I have to admit, I don't know that much about that film. I haven't seen the film, and okay. I, I'm not sure what the what the ideas of it are in terms of um, Arab scholarship. Something I need to find out. Right. Well, it's from the perspective of a blue-eyed, blonde English yeah, guy, and right. then uh, that I think that that describes the director as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's a, It's. I mean, I think the idea of films made by films made about the Middle East by Westerners is something we don't 
show at our film festival. If I can say that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unless it's ironically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Huh. And then what was it in the silent days? The chic? That was the big, uh, mm, right. you know, so Arabs um, went from this romantic kind of uh, idealistic, you know, probably uh, historically inaccurate figures. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, all the the bad guys. That's right. Yeah. Gosh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Orientalism is a long, a long problem. Um, yeah, there's Islamophobia. Um, you know, that is kind of a new um, facet of something I think that is you know um, decades and hundreds of years old that Edward Said, the scholar, you know, wrote so um, cogently about. Hmm. Well, come to think, I think I voted for an Egyptian uh, American, uh, uh, Ralph Nader, right? Wasn't yeah, he, uh, uh, um, Lebanese. Lebanese. Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. so that's uh, that. that's right. Now, just to clear up things, just showing my ignorance, the um, so to what ex- you know, so there's Saudi Arabia, but the but the mm-hmm. Arab people, how far do they span mm-hmm. out across the Middle East and Northern Africa and beyond? Yeah. Is there? Mm-hmm. I'm asking yeah. you for a little geography lesson, right? Well, yeah, Arab identity is. Um, it's kind of a limiting um, descriptor of a people group, but it's kind of the best that we have. But it's kind of a, um, based in a common language and to a certain extent um, a common culture. And it's um, so the Arab people are um, from Morocco across the middle, across um, North Africa, um, including um, Libya, Libya, mm-hmm, Algeria, Morocco, um, Egypt, Tunisia. Um, you're going to have me recount the 21 <laughs> countries. <laughs> 21 um, countries. Well, that's a. Yeah. And then all, into the Middle East, which is um, effectively West Asia. Right. Mm. So um, the Levant um, and the Persian Gulf. Um, mm. So the, um, and there's a distinction between um, Arabs and Iranians. Um, and um, within the Arab world, there are a lot of um Kind of uh, minority groups or occupied people who are who don't consider themselves Arab too, oh, right. and we uh, love having um, like films the, the and Kurds, work. The Kurds, the Kurds, the Chaldeans in in um, Iraq, um, the Berbers in um, North Africa, um, yeah, and and others, the Copts in Egypt. Okay, well, I think you've just tripled my knowledge yeah, of the Arab, yeah. Arab culture. <laughs> who and the, I mean, these are people um, who might not feel. Like they want to call themselves Arabs, you know. So this is something that we grapple with in our work too. Okay. Yeah. Well, my gosh, we've run out of time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'll have to go see some movies and see a, a, a nice lecture with the oboe solo in the middle of it. <laughs> uh, thanks for being here on uh, uh, Synapse Think Tank of the Air. Lana Barkawi, stay tuned for the Mizna Film Fest coming up, the Arab Film Fest coming up in, in uh, 27th through the 30th of September. And. Maddie Schwapak, you'll be speaking at the Yellow Summit on September 14th. Are you all, all rehearsed? I'm ready. Okay. She's ready, everybody. Okay. Well, thanks for joining us, and we'll be back again. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to Synapse. Think Tank of the Air. I'm Leo Espinosa. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. 
You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.